This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Karen Jaffe. I'm a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and I'm your moderator for today's webinar. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2007. I'm also the founder of InMotion, an amazing wellness center for people with Parkinson's in Cleveland, Ohio. So we've got a lot to discuss today, so let's get started. We're going to be talking about the many sleep issues that come with Parkinson's disease, some that even come before motor symptoms uh, develop. We'll cover how to manage these problems today and new treatments that are in the, in the testing phase for tomorrow. Let me introduce, I'd like to introduce our panelists. First of all, we have Brian Duggan, is the founder of Citizen Science for Health, a nonprofit dedicated to increasing patient empowerment and transforming medical research. He was diagnosed with REM sleep behavior disorder in 2015. We have Dr. Michelle Hugh, is a professor of clinical neuroscience and a consultant neurologist at Oxford University. She is a Parkinson's and REM sleep behavior disorder researcher. And finally, we have Dr. Maria Christina Ospina, is a movement disorder specialist in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. She's also medical director of the Regional Parkinson's Center. I want to thank all of our uh, uh, panelists for joining us today, and welcome. As a decade-long Parkinson's advocate, I've met many people in the Parkinson's community. And I would have to say that it is a rare person with Parkinson's disease who seems to be able to escape being robbed of a full night restful sleep. And so while we will discuss the management and treatment of these disorders a little bit later in the hour, let's um, review some of the, start with a, a conversation to review some of the more common sleep disorders in Parkinson's disease. So Dr. Espina, can you help us understand what it is about PD that causes these problems, just how prevalent they are, and is there any commonality between these problems? Hi, Karen, thank you for having us. So as oh, you welcome. said, Sleep issues are very, very common in Parkinson's disease and are very difficult to treat. So just like constipation, that most patients have trouble with constipation, the constipation is there way before they're diagnosed with Parkinson's disease with their motor symptoms like tremor, rigidity, bradykinesia, slowness of movement. Uh, constipation is part of the non-motor symptoms and so are sleep issues. Things like insomnia, initiating sleep or staying asleep restless leg syndromes, REM sleep behavior disorder, and sleep apnea. So in Parkinson's, once you start the medication, remember what happens in Parkinson's disease that there's cells deep in the brain that produce dopamine and for whatever reason they're dying off. And we have to replace that dopamine with the medication. So that's your carbidopa levodopa. That levodopa turns into dopamine in the brain. And usually we're treating the patient during the day with Cinemet or levodopa multiple times a day. And then at night, they're not taking any medicine. So their levels of dopamine and they develop sleep fragmentation. Many patients are have difficulty initiating sleep and staying asleep because their levels of dopamine are low. So many times we'll use once a day medicines like dopamine agonist, but then that brings other problems like excessive daytime sleepiness. Um, so what we wanna do is we try to keep your levels of dopamine stable throughout the day and the night 
to reduce sleep fragmentation, to make sure that we're not giving you too many medicines during that day that make you sleepy so that then you have excessive daytime sleepiness that can interfere with things like driving and going to work, commuting, those sorts of things. The dopamine agonists are very common uh, in having those side effects. And just like RBD, which we'll talk about a little bit later, RLS is part of uh, sleep issues in Parkinson's disease that can be present way before the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Whereas more, you know, everybody has Parkinson's probably has restless legs. Uh, <clears throat> having restless legs early on does not believe you to have Parkinson's later on in life, like we think that RBD has that uh, chance to do. And then there's a central form of sleep apnea that's common in Parkinson's disease. So many times your doctor or physician will order a sleep study uh, when you're first diagnosed with Parkinson's disease to see, do you have sleep apnea? Do you need something like a BiPAP or CPAP machine? Uh, and then we can treat things like restless legs using, again, dopamine agonist. And then we it's the reason why your doctor is always looking to use the longest acting form of levodopa, so using things like Rytari, or once-a-day versions of your medicines, like the once-a-day versions of your dopamine agonist, so that we can better cover your um, dopamine tone throughout the night. So it's easier to fall asleep and stay asleep so that those Parkinson's symptoms don't return in the middle of the night. So you don't get rigid, you don't have bradykinesia or slowness of movement, so you don't have trouble turning in bed, and so that you don't have dystonia uh, that wakes you up and then keeps you from sleeping. And dystonia is an abnormal contraction of a muscle. So when your dopamine level are low, those muscles start to get rigid and stiff. You might have cramping in the foot that might wake you up. Then you have to go to the bathroom. You come back to bed and you can't fall asleep because your brain is not relaxed enough. Your body's not relaxed enough to fall asleep. Well, this is a complicated issue. It, 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 uh, it's a little bit like, um, I mean, certainly if you're going to take a medication that's going to keep you from sleeping, then you're going to be have daytime sleepiness the next day. So it, one thing begets the other, just like uh, we take medication to help our tremor, and then the side effect of the medication is unwanted movement. <laughs> so Right. So and it's really important in Parkinson's disease that all of our therapies, whether they're medical or surgical, they're purely symptomatic. They don't stop or reverse the disease. So our job is always to make sure that the benefits of the medicine outweigh the side effects of the medicine. And so that if you have a tremor that doesn't bother you too much, we don't have to keep increasing your medicine. And that we always want to be cognizant Although the medicines help the motor symptoms of PD, like tremor, rigidity, and slowness, they make the non-motor symptoms of PD worse. They can make you more constipated. They can cause uh, daytime sleepiness. They can lower your blood pressure, which leads to dizziness, which can lead to falls. They can cause confusion and or hallucinations. So our goal is to get that balance just right, that you have enough meds on board that you're mobile, but not so much that you're dizzy every time you stand up, that you're nauseous or that you're hallucinating or falling asleep at the wheel. Well, Brian, um, before preparing for this webinar, I always thought that uh, the diagnosis of REM sleep behavior disorder was actually meant that you had Parkinson's disease, but you don't have Parkinson's disease. So can you please tell our audience your story and how, this, how it came about? Sure, sure. Um, for me, um, it was really falling out of bed. <laughs> I, I, I fell out of bed, and my wife and I commented, wow, that's kind of strange. Oh, it happened again. And then I would be moving during the night, during my dreams, and uh, flailing a little bit, or I would punch, and she would get hurt. And 
we began to think, wait, there's something more here than just some quirky fall out of bed thing. And uh, this was now some six years ago. Um, so I started researching and, um, you know, like you called Dr. Google on, on the internet, trying to understand what was going on. And in fairly short order, I realized I fit this perfect description of what they described as REM sleep behavior disorder, where one enacts one's dreams. My normal atonia had stopped. I wasn't being paralyzed during REM sleep. And particularly if I was having a violent or stressful dream, I might hurt myself. I might hurt my wife. Um, and so we just realized, hey, I have to do something about this. And in looking it up, you also learn online that it's a harbinger of more serious neurodegeneration. So on one level, yes, RBD is not the same as Parkinson's, but there's a continuum here. And there's certainly people that would describe my situation as prodromal or early stage of, of Parkinson's. But you don't have any symptoms of Parkinson's disease. I don't have any motor symptoms, but as I research this further, and my response to, to learning about this online was actually, I went to the Michael J. Fox Foundation website. I looked at Trial Finder. I found a clinical trial going on um, where I was able to get a sleep study and get my personal diagnosis validated by it through a polysomnograph, which is really only way you really know if you have RBD. And um, that was just really, really... Uh, helpful as a, uh, as a, as a first step on, on this journey. Well, thanks for that interesting introduction to RBD. So Dr. Hugh, Brian has gotten us off to a great start with this. Uh, can you fill us in a bit more about uh, REM sleep behavior disorder, uh, what it is, including the prevalence rates in terms of, you know, per, uh, going on to Parkinson's disease? Uh, and, and I'm also curious whether it matters whether somebody gets diagnosed or starts having REM sleep behavior disorder as a younger person versus as an older person, somebody who's 40 versus somebody who might be 70 or 80. So perhaps to understand RBD or REM sleep behavior disorder, we just need to start with some really basics. The first are that we as humans have three vigilant states. The first is hopefully most of us on this webinar are all in the awake state. The second is non-REM sleep, which can be divided into stages one, two, and three. As you dive deeper into sleep, you go from N1 to N2, N3 being the deepest sleep. And this, these types of uh, non-REM sleep are called slow-wave sleep because the type of electrical brain activity is very slow. REM sleep, however, which is when we dream, is typified by very high-frequency activity on our brain waves and also by the absence of any muscle tone in our muscles that keep us upright. Um, the eyes during REM sleep twitch and move. And if you've ever seen somebody dreaming, you might see that under their eyelids, the, eye, the, the eyes are jerking, often from side to side. And the other thing is that in REM sleep, we can see muscle twitching, but not usually movement uh, or speech. Um, and so REM sleep behavior disorder only occurs in REM sleep, and it happens because there is a switch in the brainstem which basically prevents you acting out your dreams when you're in this REM sleep. And this switch is located in the ponds of the brainstem, and it can be disrupted by a number of different conditions. So if you're unlucky enough to have a stroke or MS with a lesion in the brainstem or a neurodegenerative problem, 
then that can start in this area of the brainstem. And the output will be, the end result will be that you will start to move in your sleep. Uh, typically, the movements are recapitulating your dream. So we've seen many videos of people in sleep studies who box, you know, these sort of movements, or they're hitting someone or shaking someone's hand, often dreaming about sport, like kicking a football, and then waking up because they have actually kicked the wall and hurt their leg, or maybe that they're nasty dreams, they're being attacked, so they're shouting, and they're trying to push the bed partner. So this condition can be quite violent, not for the person who's having the dream, but for the bed partner. And I've seen this firsthand when I first became a consultant and a male patient with RBD was dragged to my clinic by the wife and he was really oblivious to the problem, but she had had enough and was now sleeping in a separate bed. We know from population-based studies that RBD occurs around the world. It occurs in Western populations, Asian populations and European populations. And using sleep studies to validate the diagnosis, which is the best level we have of making the diagnosis, it's around 1% to 2%, up to about 3% prevalent in populations. And it increases over the age of 60 years. We do see REM sleep behaviour disorder in a much rarer group of younger people who have... Um, uh, a type of sleep disorder uh, called narcolepsy uh, with cataplexy. And these patients probably have a much lower risk of future conversion. So it's important to, to understand that RBD was only actually described about 25 years ago by a sleep neurologist uh, called Carlos Schenk, who was working um, in Michigan and who saw this happening to a person in the sleep clinic. And he thought they must be awake. And he went in and tried to, to sort of talk to them, and they didn't respond. And then he realized that this was happening during their dream state. And it was his original description that has now been recapitulated. And as people started to follow up people with RBD, they recognized over a long-term follow-up that there's about a 6% chance per year of everybody with RBD converting to a neurodegenerative condition, and that is most commonly Parkinson's disease, second commonly dementia with Lewy body, and third, other related conditions. So it's the highest or strongest risk factor we have for Parkinson's. However, it is important to realize that not everybody with RBD will convert. We still know of people who have had this condition who are living in their 90s without any phenoconversion. How long does it take on average? Probably around 15 years. Uh, we know from following up these people that the earliest non-motor symptom is loss of sense of smell. That happens 20 years before conversion on average. And that around 15 years is when the REM sleep behavior disorder manifests. My research is really focusing on this group of patients because they are um, a very homogeneous group of individuals They've all been sleep clinic diagnosed. They've all had the sleep study. Uh, and they can all give us the date in which their symptoms developed. So they are an ideal group of people to study how we can best prognose uh, or prognosticate people. So how can we develop an individual risk for that individual person with RBD 
of imminent conversion, because this group of people, I would argue, are most likely to potentially benefit from curative treatments that we might use also for people with Parkinson's. But I think it's a spectrum, and the RBD are just at the earlier phase of it. Is is there a reason that it seems that that it's the, the people with RBD have these violent dreams, or you know you don't see anybody complaining that they're happy birthday dreams? There are happy dreams. I've definitely seen videos of people uh, laughing um, and having a really happy, jokey time. Um, and the speech is often kind of sounds like you can almost understand the words. But when you listen a bit harder, it's actually quite slurred and it's difficult to make out. However, there, it's probably true that the, the more dreams are quite frightening rather than pleasant. And a lot of people have wondered about why would you have, what is the biological function of dream sleep or REM sleep? And one hypothesis is that it helps the brain to consolidate memory of an unpleasant event. And when that memory is firmly fixed in the brain through going through it in your dream, you then avoid it the next day and you survive, your chances of survival are higher. So maybe in an evolutionary way, this gave some survival advantage. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it doesn't take a diagnosis of REM sleep disorder, behavior disorder to ruin somebody's night's sleep. Here's a slide that lists a lot of the conditions that many Parkinson's patients deal with on a regular basis um, that are going to affect our sleep. Um, and be why uh, it eludes us. Um, I I blame my own sleep disorder on my medications, but um, I'd like to take a look at um, what what we um, at, at how often we see these things. Brian, are these any of these things part of your sleep disorder? Um, frequency of urination certainly wakes one up in the night, so it's part of the part of the mix, I would say, and. On the issue of we just were talking about with different types of dreams, I think anxiety does play a role there. Um, you know, we'll talk later about management of this, but reducing stress um, over the peer over a period of years certainly has changed the character of my dreams. If you're acting out a dream and it's very benevolent and benign and some small thing, it's not really that big a deal versus a terrifying nightmare that you're acting out. So. Um, I think reducing anxiety and stress reduction in general, um, again, has been part of the management of this, but it, it's certainly an issue that, that leads to worse sleep for me. Mm -hmm. Dr. Espina, you're in clinical practice. So how often do um, you find that Parkinson's patients are, that you're uncovering that they're part of their sleep problems are due to some of these things that are on this list? Yeah, it's, so it's very, very common. Um, so you, like medication side effects, remember there's medicines like dopamine agonists that can make you very sleepy. Then there's medicines that can keep you up. So things like selegiline, it metabolizes into an amphetamine. And the reason why we have patients take it in the morning and the noon hour is that it can keep you up. And so it can cause uh, insomnia that way. And then remember, remember that you've got the, your motor symptoms of PD, but you've got the non-motor symptoms like the bladder issues, like the urgency and frequency of urination that can keep you up, and anxiety, which can also be part of the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. 
So as your levodopa is wearing off, not only is the tremor and rigidity coming back, but so are the non-motor symptoms. And many times that is a free-floating anxiety. Some patients have a panic attack and that can interfere with sleep as well if it's happening at that time. And many off periods happen at night. So pain and discomfort. You know, many PD patients go through one or two mattresses. And the problem, it's not the mattress, it's not the bed. It's the body that's lacking dopamine that can't relax and can't turn over over in bed, can't get in and out of bed, or becomes, has dystonia, the toes start to cramp up, you get a charley horse back pain. And that's because your levels of dopamine have gone low. So then your doctor in that instance is going to be trying to use the once a day medicines to get better cover your dopamine symptoms uh, at night. So, or add a dose of levodopa in the middle of the night so that your trough isn't so low and that pain and discomfort coming from an off period or a dystonia doesn't wake you up and then keep you from falling asleep. And fatigue is very common as well. So you can have fatigue because you're not sleeping, your sleep-wake cycle has been inverted, so you're up all night and now you're tired during the day, you don't have enough energy. But again, you can have fatigue because of Parkinson's. If you're underdosed, you don't have enough medicine on board, your levodopa is like gas in the car. So if you run out of gas, patients have a lot of fatigue and they feel like, gosh, I just can't go through the day. One of our audience members is asking, does alcohol impact sleep? Yes, and, yeah. and probably Dr. Hugh can talk better about that. I mean, having been a medical student in my time, <laughs> uh, I think we're aware of the fact that if we have uh, perhaps more than we should in terms of alcohol, our sleep quality is absolutely appalling um, and our dreams tend to be often a bit more vivid. And if you study somebody, a, a normal control person, their sleep uh they're basically what we call their sleep architecture, which is that sort of nice cycle of what I mentioned going through sort of drowsiness through, you know, to, 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 to REM and then non-REM sleep and then repeating maybe three times in a night. All of that is just totally messed up. Uh, by alcohol. Uh, and it, it also reduces uh, the restorative sleep, uh, which many of us believe is so important for people with Parkinson's to maintain their memory and their vigilance and their attention in the day, which is the, the, the slow wave restorative sleep. Um, I think it's also important when you're in an early phase of Parkinson's to also recognize that while dopaminergic medication can actually help sleep, uh, for Parkinson's, it can actually also make sleep worse. Uh, so in addition to alcohol, I have had patients who with simple levodopa or dopamine agonists have actually rarely developed insomnia as a direct side effect where we've had to move the medication earlier in the day because if they take it after six o'clock, they can't sleep. And this is also, you know, also the effect of caffeine, of exercising too late, uh, perhaps of using too much computers and stimulation and blue light. So all of these things together form what we um, neurologists or sleep physicians call sleep hygiene. And it's really an important part of managing any sleep problem that a person with Parkinson's will experience. Uh, also, we see RBD can be triggered by medication or unmasked. And the best evidence for this are, are for medications such as selegiline, uh, and phenylzine and chlorpromazine, which are sedative medications. But it is also linked to SSRI medications used to treat, of course, anxiety and depression in Parkinson's patients or RBD. 
we have looked at how non-motor symptoms vary and we compared the non-motor symptoms using standard questionnaires in 300 people with RBD from our cohort compared to 300 age and gender match controls and around 800 people with Parkinson's. And the really surprising thing is that the person with RBD had an almost identical level of severity of non-motor symptoms, including anxiety, depression, mild problems with memory, uh, sleep disorders, excessive daytime somnolence, as the person with Parkinson's. Uh, and they were both significantly different, the RBD and the Parkinson's person, from somebody without Parkinson's. The only difference is that the person with RBD has only subtle tremor or maybe just can't swing one arm very well. So their motor symptoms and their motor signs are an order of magnitude milder than the person who has manifest Parkinson's. Can either Dr. Hugh or Dr. Spina address deep brain stimulation effect and how that affects the sleeping? Uh, a couple of our audience members are asking whether it makes it better. Does it help it at all? I mean, there, certainly there's really good wealth of data now that STN, which is subthalamic nucleus deep brain stimulation, um, significantly reduces non-motor symptoms, and that includes domains like sleep. Um, there is also, I'm aware in Oxford, uh, of a study using um, PPN, pedunculopontine nucleus stimulation, which is usually reserved for any gate freezing showing that that improves um, autonomic problems. And we are going to be doing objective sleep monitoring before and after stimulation to see if it improves sleep outcome. Dr. Espina, is that yep. anything that you... Yep, I, I agree. And so remember that DBS or deep brain stimulation, it gives you, it's a, it's a, thir a surgical therapy that's on 24 seven. So unlike oral medicines where you're taking them every three or four hours, you're peaking and troughing, the DBS is on all of the time. And so we're trying to increase your dopamine tone throughout the 24 hour period and it's not being pulsed up and down. So it helps you with less rigidity, less bradykinesia. So things like turning in bed are easier, getting in and out of bed are easier. If we can reduce that rigidity, you're going to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep easier. So it certainly has improved those non-motor symptoms and helps you sleep better. And remember, if you sleep at, like Dr. Hughes said, it's really, really important in patients with Parkinson's disease, patients with neurodegenerative diseases, because what's happening in Parkinson's, you've got this misfolded alpha-synuclein that the cell can't get rid of. And the slow-wave sleep is part of when the, the brain does all of its housekeeping and repair work, and it tries to get rid of this misfolded protein. And it consolidates memory, so short-term memory turns into long-term memory. It helps you with uh, cognition. Uh, so learning and memory are very important and are helped by sleep. And anything that we can do to improve your sleep and the length of sleep, as Dr. Hugh was saying, that you go through these stages of sleep throughout the night, we don't like to interrupt that because then you're not getting into that deep, slow-wave sleep, which is restorative for the brain. And something like DBS that can have that continuous dopamine tone helps us achieve that uh, as best we can, much better than the oral medications. So I'm curious about DBS. It's you, you hear about how it helps with motor symptoms and things like that, but you don't. I don't. I haven't heard much about people talking about the non-motor symptoms, like things like sleep disorders and stuff like that. For people who had DBS a long time ago, do, do those statements still apply to whatever how DBS was done 15 or 20 years ago? Uh, 
do they still have, do they also get the same benefits that current DBS people who get DBS in 2021 would have? Perhaps I could, I mean, I think the first thing is that 15 years ago, we didn't really measure non-major symptoms and we weren't aware of it so much. So the initial people who got operated on 15 years ago probably wouldn't have had um, a non-major symptom scale questionnaire or an RBD screening questionnaire or an Epworth scale, which all of we, which look at different aspects of disturbed sleep. Um, I don't think we actually know the answer to that because the data that I was mentioning on the benefit of SDM deep vein stimulation came from Ray Chowdhury's group, who's focusing on non-major symptoms. It's only really been published in the last one or two years. Um, so I may be wrong, but I'm not aware of a really nice longitudinal study showing that the benefit of surgery is maintained at five and 10 and 15 years after surgery. Great. Another audience question wants to know whether heat or temperature uh, impacts sleep. So ideally, you'd want to sleep in a slightly cooler room um, and so that, that you can sleep throughout the night. Uh, the hotter the room, the more likely you are to have more vivid dreams, just like having uh, you know, things like dopamine agonists, like Dr. Hughes said, especially in young onset patients, they can cause your dreams to be more vivid. So certainly you want to be comfortable, not too cold, but slightly lower temperature and certainly not too hot. That's certainly one of the things I've found, too. Um, there's a researcher out here at Berkeley, Dr. Matt Walker, and one of his things as part of sleep hygiene is kind of shooting for about 65 degrees. Again, everybody's different, but that's, that's worked for me, going for a cooler room. That's been part of a helpful regimen. Enjoying this podcast, share it with a friend or rate and review it on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. MichaelJFox.org. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the podcast. Well, let's let's move on to what we the big topic here, and that is managing these sleep problems. Um, Dr. Spina, I'm going to start with you and maybe you can tackle some of the things that are on this list uh, about sleep hygiene, uh, especially, and some of the, uh, other things that are listed there as well. Yeah. So certainly, so good sleep hygiene is key. So the last thing you want to do is be taking very long naps during the day, especially in the afternoon. And then you invert your sleep wake cycle so that you're sleeping most of the day and then awake at night. Then that can lead to trouble with the insomnia, the sleep fragmentation. So always talk to your doctor about, you know, your medications and how well they're working. So do, sometimes you may need a dose of levodopa in the middle of the night to, to keep you um, sleeping through the night. Like Dr. Hughes said, we want to avoid things like computers, tablets, you know, your phone because of the blue light that's going to keep you up. Uh, and so we want to put those things away earlier in the day. And then we want to stay away from things like caffeine late at night. You know, we don't want to be taking coffee late at night. Like Dr. Q said, not a lot of alcohol because it disrupts that sleep architecture. We want to be going through all those stages of sleep to get the benefits of the sleep, which are consolidating memories and consolidating learning that has happened during the day. Um, and then exercise is very beneficial. So if you want to do some exercise early in the afternoon, that will help you with sleep. And then just like you want to have a well-balanced diet, you want to have a well-balanced exercise program so that you want to do some aerobic exercise, which we may think that it may be restorative for the brain, keep you, keeps, it 
keeps your brain young and healthy. And then we want to do some resistance training to help you with the muscles and the bones. So in Parkinson's disease, there's nothing wrong with the muscles. They're just bradykinetic. They're moving slowly. If you're not moving those muscles, they tend to atrophy and waste away. And then if the muscles aren't pushing and pulling on the bone, it doesn't tell the bone, hey, I need to suck that calcium from my diet or my supplement into the bone to make it strong and healthy. So if you happen to fall, you're less likely to have a fracture. So you want to have a well-balanced exercise program. So you have aerobic exercise for the brain to keep it young and healthy, and then resistance training to keep your bones and muscles uh, strong and healthy in Parkinson's disease. And that you want me to go into complementary or alternative uh, things? Sure. Or... Sure. And then uh, cannabis is always something that's asked about here in America, since so many states are now legalizing it. Uh, and so some patients, so cannabis, we've got two forms, the CBD oil and then the THC. In Parkinson's patients, you usually want to stay away from the THC because you're already on psychoactive medications. Your levodopa already causes hallucinations. All of your dopamine agonists can be uh, hallucinogenic as well. And so we don't want to add in one more thing that can cause you to be confused and hallucinate. Some patients have found that the CBD portion, the CBD oil, can help with sleep, so insomnia, initiating sleep, and can help with pain. Uh, there's still not enough data on that. Uh, light therapy can help. So especially patients with seasonal affective disorder, they can use light therapy to help not only their mood, but to reset their clock and uh, reset that 24-hour circadian rhythm. Things like acupuncture, so anything that helps you with the rigidity of Parkinson's disease, like uh, massage, tai chi, yoga, acupuncture, again, helps relax the body so that it can fall asleep and then also relax the brain. So it's not only the brain, the, the body that's stiff and rigid, but sometimes your brain is going a mile a minute and making tons of lists. And that can be a reason why you can't fall asleep and why it keeps you asleep. Uh, so meditation, tai chi helps you retrain the mind so that you can fall asleep easier. Uh, in regards to cannabis and the CBD oil, how are patients to know how much, how often? Uh, it seems that um, everybody um, has a different formulation of it. Or um, how, is there any guidelines that are out there for people who want to try this? Yeah, so that's very difficult because there aren't any guidelines, and it's you know depending on the state, you know some have re regulations and some don't. So it's not a very regulated. So it's sort of like you know vitamins. You don't know when you buy some vitamins, you know how much vitamin D is in it, and uh, is it actually vitamin D? It's not regulated by the FDA, right? Uh, and neither is cannabis. And so it's something that, and and it's it's different from state to state. Uh, so everybody has to sort of see try it and see what works for them. So some patients, you know, in Arizona, gummies are very popular. You know, some patients say, well, I only eat the head of the gummy bear and that's enough for me. Uh, so I think that there's a lot- Can somebody more have too that, much? Yes, you can have too much. So you can have, so it can lead to confusion, hallucinations. Uh, you know, remember you're yeah. mixing it with all of your other medications. So we want to be very careful with that. Dr. Hugh? I'm just thinking that um, in all of these treatment trials that we have for, for sleep disorder, there's very little good evidence base. Um, one of the problems is that, particularly with complementary therapies, is you don't have a placebo-controlled trial. And a placebo benefit, which is that you're, you think you're taking a drug that's going to work for you, uh, mm -hmm. can be 
massive in somebody with Parkinson's, up to a 50, 60, 70% benefit, just simply because they have that sense that they're taking something that's working, you're much more positive. I have recently reviewed a paper that actually was the first ever that I'm aware, placebo-controlled trial using cannabidiol versus uh, placebo. And that actually used patient diary as endpoints for RBD, as well as um, the overnight sleep study. So I am bound by confidentiality. I can't tell you the results. <laughs> However, um, it was it showed some promising benefit for overall sleep quality, uh, but not necessarily for RBD. But I think we need more studies of this nature to really kind of tease out what works. In terms of treating RBD, we have some placebo-controlled trials of short duration in small numbers of people with Parkinson's uh, and idiopathic RBD. These are people who have not converted to a condition uh, that show benefit with clonazepam, uh, which is a benzodiazepine like Valium, um, and also melatonin. However, the one melatonin study I'm aware of that actually used sleep monitoring as the endpoint, which used melatonin up to a dose of four milligram, was negative in Parkinson's. However, I believe that Brian has um, his own anecdotal experience that might also be helpful to listen to. When it comes to managing RBD, it's a unique sleep problem because on one level, the first thing you need to do is reduce the chance for sleep-related injury. If you're moving about in your sleep, if you're falling out of bed, if you're punching your bed partner, there's a big chance for injury. So for my wife and I, it was really about moving our bed low to the floor, getting a larger bed, putting a lot of pillows around. Um, when traveling, doing a lot of those same kinds of pillow, uh, pillow things to uh, create a safe environment. Otherwise, you feel stressed going to sleep because you wake up out of a dream into some violent incident. It's a terrifying thing for the patient and for the partner who's trying to manage this, who's often the one getting hurt. I mean, I, you talked about sports dreams. I used to dream about a basketball rolling out of bounds. I have to get this basketball. I have to get this. I woke up one time and I was holding my wife's head in my hands and she was calmly talking me down out of this. But it, so it, it's, it's a lot to deal with just from the sleep-related injury side. But then you get to the fact that there is a risk of ongoing neurodegeneration here. And like you said earlier, Dr. Who, you know, I had lost my sense of smell 10 years earlier. So you're having a constellation of symptoms that do look like they lead to further neurodegeneration. And so the one does everything you can to try to, or my approach has been to try to do everything I can to uh, reduce the chances of neurodegeneration. Melatonin has worked very well for me at a higher dose. Again, in the groups and people I talk with, clonazepam is also something that often works for, for folks. Um, but it's really in a constellation of um, what one neurologist talked to me about as the basics are basics for a reason. Exercise, as Dr. Espino was talking about, um, including high-intensity in, high interval training um, and uh, diet, um, stress reduction, overall sleep hygiene, um, I, my, my approach is to do any experiments I can that will help me be part of the, uh, percentage of people that don't convert to something more serious or don't develop more serious motor symptoms. I will just comment on the CBD. I have started experimenting with, uh, CBD oil here. Um, 
the what I think is you know getting a high quality product is important. Using a full spectrum product, often as a tincture, may be the best way to do it. And then starting with low number, maybe five milligrams, and trying to work your way up. But I, I found that that's been a little bit helpful in my sleep as well. What do you mean by a full spectrum product, Brian? Well, see, but there's a lot of products out there where they isolate CBD, and there's a lot of cheap products where it's just isolated CBD on its own or in a in a, a solvent of some kind, and and that's not really what you want. There, the the value of the plant of the CBD seems to be when it comes with all of the terpenes and all of the things that are in the plant itself. Because again, all of this is very experimental. From a, from a scientific standpoint, we don't know what these things do yet. But the full value of the plant can be found with one of these high quality, full spectrum uh, uh, tinctures. And and um, yeah. And as Brian says, you know, over the counter, we use a lot of melatonin uh, for patients. And then as a prescription medicine, we use clonazepam, a low dose clonazepam to suppress REM. And then we do things like if there's, like Brian said, you make the pillow for some patients sleep in separate bedrooms. Some patients where they're, you know, falling out of bed, they'll we, you'll use a bed rail or put the mattress low to the floor. Or we'll put the patient into a sleeping bag so that when they're flailing about, they're sort of self-contained. They're not hitting the lamp. They're not hitting the wall. They're not punching the bed partner. Uh, so there's you know many behavioral things and or medications that we can use to treat RBD to make it less violent. Just to give a little bit of a helpful um, note on this, my experience has been that the combination of higher dose melatonin with all of some of these other lifestyle choices and good sleep hygiene, going to bed early so that those deep sleep hours can take place or minutes, maybe they're not hours. Um, it, it's all accumulated for me into much less RBD over time. And I have not yet converted to more serious um, motor symptoms. Dr. Spina, is, is all melatonin the same? Or is there some, one of the uh, audience members is asking whether there are different forms of melatonin or this melatonin, melatonin. That's the thing. So again, it's not regulated by the FDA. So you always want to get your vitamins and your things like melatonin by, you know, when you look at the bottle to see that it was looked at by another independent laboratory saying, yes, what's truly in this pill or gummy is melatonin. And that is three milligrams. So it's, again, it's one of the, problems with our FDA that it does not regulate over-the-counter medications, including vitamins uh, and things like melatonin. Okay. So on our last slide here, oh, look, there I am. My husband and I on our anniversary, he surprised me with a, with a private sailboat cruise that night. Um, so obviously these things don't impact just us, but impact our family members, our care partners, our spouses. Um, Brian, you mentioned a little bit about how you have changed your environment to adjust uh, and to keep yourself and your spouse protected. What other kind of um, struggles or challenges have you guys faced because of your REM sleep behavior disorder? Well, it's it's sort of fa there are phases to it, right? At the beginning, when one first falls out of bed or first lashes out, it's kind of you look at each other like, oh my God, what's going on here? I mean, and, and, um, uh, I don't know how much, many folks have followed Alan Alda's um, diagnosis, and and but his his experience was much the same. He was he was uh, throwing a pillow at his wife during the night, 
and um, then went and did online research and uh, an article by Jane Brody, I think, and learned about RBD. And that led him to find out he had Parkinson's. So at the beginning, you're in this violence at night sort of struggle. Um, um, in our case, we did spend some time in separate beds, but then found a way to make it work to be um, all together um, in a safe environment. And um, But it's a, it's a challenge for the partners as much because I will wake up out of a dream, but I don't know what's been going on. I don't know I've been flailing until I wake up. And they've had to live with the talking, the noise, the punching, whatever it is. For me... You know, I don't see my sleep problems as, my, as a problem. So because I don't see it as a problem, um, and basically I, I don't get enough hours of sleep, but my husband does, and it does impact the, the family member, especially the spouse. Um, one, of the, one of our audience members is asking whether a person who's having a REM sleep bad dream should be woken up during it. Well, how, how, do, you, how do they manage that, and how, how do they um, proceed with when they're in the middle of it? Dr. Hugh, you want to take this one? Yeah, I mean, I think, so what I tend to say to the partner is that they're often very aware that this is happening and they can see and know from experience whether this is going to escalate into something that is a really big, full-blown attack with movement and, you know, potential for injury. And what I would tend to say is it is probably, in my experience, better to wake up the partner if you can sense it's going up to that. And then the person will wake. Um, in fact, actually, if you wake someone up during that episode of REM sleep and RBD, they immediately know the dream um, and they remember it. But if you let them sleep through, they might not remember it the next day. So they will wake up. Obviously, the realization will then slowly dawn. This is just a dream. They can get some reassurance and they can hopefully then just go back to sleep. But this time, go through the sleep phases without going into an episode of RBD. Um, I'm interested to know what uh, Maria's uh, thoughts are on this. Um, and just one other question which was on the chat is, is mindfulness or meditation helpful for sleep? Um, certainly insomnia, which is delayed sleep onset, lying in bed with your mind really racing and not being able to go to sleep is one of the commonest sleep problems for people with Parkinson's. And in the UK, we have an app called Sleepio, S-L-E-E-P-I-O, which was developed by uh, researchers in the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, which is available for patients to download worldwide. And it is providing cognitive behavioral therapy approach to insomnia, and it has been tested and shown to be effective. Uh, so I would certainly recommend that. Um, and that's a very similar approach to mindfulness um, and can help you get back to sleep if you wake in the middle of the night. Um, Maria, do you ask your, um, your patients, bed partners, to wake them up uh, in, the, in the middle of an episode if it looks to be escalating? Yeah, so if it looks like to be escalating, so there's going to be self-harm or the bed partner is going to be punched, then they can be woken up. If it's just mumbling or talking or it, sometimes even screaming and it's not going to, there aren't any movements, you could let them sleep through it because that, they won't remember any of the dream whatsoever as, or if they're in another room. Um, and so really, RBD is really a problem for the more for the bed partner than it is for the patient because the patient sleeps through all of that. So unless they're getting out of bed or sleepwalking, or punching. The, or, you're in, you know, or you're in a hotel. So, 
Or, yeah, or you know, hotel. So if you're screaming and then somebody's calling the hotel manager because they think there's a murder happening in there, <laughs> you, you want to wake them up. And then, and another thing that's interesting is that during the day, the Parkinson's patient is very hypophonic. They have a, a low, whispery voice. They have trouble getting their voice out. But during mm -hmm. REM sleep, you know, they're yelling and screaming, and it's a full-throated voice. And it's sort of interesting to see how, why does that happen. You know, why can they get a big scream out at night? And then during LSVT or big and loud, they can barely get a, <laughs> their, their voice out. The videos show that the movements are very quick. Right. Exactly. Uh, that bradykinesia. And so the uh -huh. question is what's happening in REM sleep that's different, that's accessing different motor pathways to generate movement. Um, and it's an absolutely fascinating question, really, isn't it, to think about? Right. Uh, the exactly. other interesting thing is that generally people with um, RBD don't generally make it outside of the bedroom um, because um, the movements that are needed to walk and the anti-gravity tone is just not there. Um, and so they usually kind of fall out of bed uh, or they'll take a few steps and then fall and wake themselves up on the floor um, as opposed to a non-REM parasomnia, which is the sort of night terror that you get in much younger people when they do actually sleepwalk very effectively and go downstairs into the kitchen, get make a sandwich and go back to bed. Right. Yeah. It's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Now I've had Parkinson's disease for 14 years and I've just in the past year started having, you know, screaming out violent dreams, things like that. What percentage of Parkinson's patients develop uh, RBD? Yeah, so um, we looked at this in our cohort of 1,000 people. Um, we didn't have, obviously, the, the logistics and the resources to do um, polysomnogram or sleep study in everyone, so we just used the RBD screening questionnaire. So that is um, limited. It's not 100% accurate for RBD, but it's um, about 80 to 90%. So using that screening questionnaire in around 1,000 people with Parkinson's who are within a mean of one year from their Parkinson diagnosis, 38% were positive or having active uh, RBD in the previous six months. Uh, we've now actually tracked the frequency of RBD uh, in each individual with their Parkinson's over a mean duration of about six to seven years, which is the length of follow-up we have in our Oxford Discovery cohort. Um, and the reason for this is that anecdotally, I've talked to a lot of patients and, and bed partners who sort of say, well, the RBD seems to have got a bit better it seems to have responded to dopaminergic therapies. Um, you know, maybe it's burning itself out. But actually, at a group level, in over probably now 750 people who've been followed up every 18 months with the same screening questionnaire, the RBD frequency keeps going up um, during their Parkinson's duration. And people like you, Karen, who develop it only after their diagnosis are, are definitely... Um, recognize so you know not everybody gets it before um and some people get it uh, during you know the first five years some will only get it following five to ten years of diagnosis and it never goes away i mean i do have individuals who have said to me i don't think i've ever had an episode of rbd since uh, i went on to this treatment but the problem with it is that you're reliant on their knowledge of their sleep or the bed partner and many people can be having like mild episodes of RBD that you might only pick up during a sleep study. So I think uh, that's not possible to say definitively. <laughs> yeah, I could jump but in so on that and just and just say that yeah. 
I feel like uh, I have my RBD symptoms quite well under control these days, but I have probably some degree of RBD, some degree of movement, most nights, maybe every night, and I still will have violent or thrashing movements that I sleep through. And so it doesn't bother me so much, and my wife and I have arranged so it doesn't bother her so much, but it's not gone, it's just controlled. Um, Dr. Hugh, is there anything else that you can share with our audience about the current research that's happening in, with RBD? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think to mention, obviously, this is a Michael J. Fox Foundation-sponsored um, webinar. So um, they are the PPMI prodromal cohort, I think, is really going to help us because um, it has the resources to really follow up large numbers of prodromal Parkinson's individuals, including those with RBD. And so in Oxford, we're going to be part of the first wave recruiting people who've had a sleep diagnosis, and they're going to go in alongside other people who may have higher risk through family history of Parkinson's, through genes, through uh, having poor sense of smell. Um, and they're going to be seen uh, very regularly every six months. But importantly, they're also going to have a number of different tests or biomarkers that we hope to be able to put together in combination to pick out those who are at the highest sort of 10% risk of converting and that those individuals we would want them to be maybe having a 50 or 60 percent chance of imminent conversion in the next two years because really those are the individuals that would most benefit from high risk treatments designed uh, really to try and prevent you or slow down or delay the onset of your parkinson's so this is a, this is the sort of way that I think research is going now, um, and through the PPMI, we'll be able to combine uh, imaging, brain scans with very clinical, uh, simple digital measures like a smartphone or a home sleep measure uh, with a very sort of clinical bedside test and maybe a blood test as well uh, to throw into that mix. And I think those combinations of biomarkers, which is really what we've been looking at in Oxford, uh, will help to refine that. And, and that's really, I'm excited about going forward into trials now with people with RBD. And so, you know, we're really keen to get patients with RBD like Brian involved uh, in um, as ambassadors so that people can hear what the experience is like of living with RBD and their patient voice is also recognized by pharmaceutical industries because people with RBD, they're not asymptomatic. They do have a lot of symptoms, particularly on the non-motor side, and that can be worse than uh, somebody with Parkinson's. I think the other thing is there's a number of new compounds, new drug compounds now being tested. Um, and when you looked at this recently, uh, we have six compounds uh, through either Biogen, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, uh, looking at either GABA uh, agonists or different uh, histamine uptake or dopamine reuptake inhibitors to look at the benefit on sleep. Um, and I think that, that if we have something that is really effective, that will be a big breakthrough because, it, as we've said already, improving someone's sleep will have a big impact on them, but also on their family, not just on their quality of life, but on their motor symptoms the next day and on their ability to think and retain information, et cetera. Um, and I think that's it, really. That's all I have to say at the moment. Brian, was there something you wanted to add? Well, just on that, that point about, you know, the importance of sleep. I mean, on the one hand, sleep hygiene, sleep, something to do to um, take care of oneself, but it's also 
potentially uh, a way to prevent neurodegeneration, right? And to increase neurogenesis and to um, stop one's progression, you know, from moving on. So speaking as a patient in the RBD community, you know, this recognition that, okay, this may be a prodromal stage of Parkinson's. How do we um, keep ourselves from moving forward and keep, you know, keep our keep ourselves from neurodegeneration we're we're excited to be part of the research and part of the ppmi and to um contribute to an understanding of a of a constellation of symptoms that we're all experiencing over a, of a wide continuum even those of us that don't have motor symptoms well and for people who are interested in the ppmi study uh if you go to the resource section of, on the website here uh, the the um, links to, for uh, uh, more information about that PPMI study is, should be in the resource box. I also wanted to bring up in the resource box, uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about this earlier, but Fox Foundation has created something new called the Parkinson's Buddy Network. It's also listed in the uh, resource um, portion of the screen. Um, and this is a network where it's um, creating... Um, you know, one-on-one -on -one connections for people who maybe need to want to have a little bit more support that they that they're not getting, or um, having a conversation with somebody who understands what you're going through. Uh, and it's it's still in the beta testing phase. So you, if you want to get involved, you can click on the resource box and and sign up and have some input into how that buddy system gets uh, developed. So those are two important tools that you could uh, use. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of our time here. I want to thank uh, everybody. I know we had a big audience today uh, for being a part of our community and for joining us today. And of course, thanks to our panelists for sharing their time and their expertise. Dr. Hugh, Dr. Spina, Brian, it was great to meet you and uh, hopefully we'll um, see you in the future. We'll be sending a link to this webinar on demand to listen again and share it as you would like. We hope that you found it helpful. Uh, and may you st stay safe and stay connected and be well. Thanks for listening. Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.